Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome back to the pod. There's something about that New Year energy that just makes me want to organize and put everything on a one-pager, whether it's personal finance, goals, travel plans, who you want to meet up with, who you want to see less of, all that good stuff. And uh, one of the things I've personally really been getting into is personal finance and investing. And I think you could sort of look at the lifestyle business journey as just one big personal finance strategy. And that's what led to this week's guest, Someone who speaks about personal finance in a thoughtful and engaging way and whose blog I've been following for a very long time. Sam Dogan, creator of Financial Samurai, started in 2009. Sam writes about many themes, some of which we're going to cover today, including different sorts of property investing and how you might want to evolve this as you grow older, diversification of your portfolio, the pros and cons of FIRE, that's financial independence, retire early, and the importance of parlaying your career or your business. So lots of great stuff. Stick around. Sam has a really unique take on what many consider to be a really boring topic. For me, it's incredibly exciting. So I started out by asking Sam the inspiration for starting Financial Samurai in the first place. The inspiration was just getting beat up in the global financial crisis. I had lost like 35% of my net worth in six months. And this was despite thinking I did everything correctly, saved, invested, diversified, worked hard, but I just got crushed. And so instead of picking up drinking or smoking, I decided to write. I was free and I always thought it'd be cool to do something entrepreneurial. And I come up with Financial Samurai in 2006 uh, when I had just graduated from business school part-time. Uh, but I didn't do anything because I said, what time to use my education to optimizing my career in finance. But once financial crisis hit, I was like, okay, no more excuses. Let's, let's just launch something. Did you do anything wrong in retrospect? If you could run it back, would you do it differently? Or was that just the nature of the market at that time? I basically invested 90 plus percent of my savings because I wanted to get out of the industry. And the only way I could get out was to generate passive income. And so in retrospect, I mean, I invested too aggressively in 2007 equities, real estate. I bought a vacation property and then things went to hell in 2008, nine and 10 or eight and nine at least. And so in retrospect, I would have been more conservative to try to recognize that those crazy euphoria, much like it is right now and dialed back risk. Are you dialing back risk right now? I've heard some smart people say the smart people are selling. <laughs> well, I mean, the wealthiest people are selling a lot of their holdings, like the CEO of Microsoft sold half his holdings. Elon Musk sold like $17 billion, which is not that much since he's worth over $200 billion. I am focused more on real assets in 2022, like stuff that doesn't go poof overnight. You saw DocuSign the other day. I mean, I use DocuSign to try to bid on houses online. It missed its sales estimates by like 4%. It was like, it only grew by 28% instead of 32%. And the stock went down 42%. <laughs> and so that's like not something that I am comfortable 
allocating a lot of my capital towards. So I'm not enthusiastically buying equities here at all. I'm just like, well, I'll ride it because I think earnings are going to continue to improve and things are going to get better. And the pandemic is endemic. And we're just going to get on with things. And we've got tons of savings and earnings power to unleash in this economy. So I'm just going to ride it. But it's about 30% of my net worth is equities. 40% is real estate, so real assets. I include my business in part of my network, so I can say 20% something. And then I've got a lot of alternative assets like venture debt, venture capital, real estate crowdfunding. It's not really alternative. It's, it's just online real estate investing. So is it's diversified. When you talk a lot about being a part of crowdfunding in real estate, can you describe yeah. what that's all about? Well, so I differentiated between owning physical real estate. So you own your house, you own rental properties where you manage the tenants, find the tenants, manage the maintenance issues. And then there's online real estate where you can invest in real estate ETFs. You can buy home builders, you can buy Home Depot stock, and you can buy private real estate syndication deals, which these real estate crowdfunding platforms have created for us. So in the past, you couldn't invest like in a $10 million, $20 million multifamily because you just don't have the money. So they chop up and sell off a portion of equity to retail investors, whether accredited or not. And so let's say you own real estate in San Francisco, which is very expensive, low cap rates. So like the rental yields are very low, but high appreciation historically relative to the median. And you want to diversify away and you're also older and you don't want to deal with tenants and maintenance issues. So what I decided back in 2016 was to say, look, I think the future of America is more dispersed thanks to technology. And so I think more people will leave high costs of living cities on the coast and move towards lower cost of areas in the heartland, such as in Austin. And so I decided to invest aggressively in 2016 and 2017 and diversify my holdings away from my physical real estate in San Francisco and also some in Lake Tahoe and Honolulu, more towards the heartland. Because why do we have a monopoly on tech and VC. We do because we're all here, but I think you got to think about in the future as an investor, where is that money going to go? And thanks to technology, it's going to go to other places. Why, why can't there be a tech hub in Austin or Memphis, Charleston, South Carolina, and so forth? And the pandemic has really accelerated that. And so you can earn higher cap rates, higher rental yields in lower cost areas of the country. And so what you can do is you can kind of like arbitrage and invest in, let's say, Austin, earn like a 7% cap rate, so you're 7% yield, and you can actually rent properties in San Francisco or New York where it's much more expensive, but the cap rates are only like 2%. So that's just how I thought about it, to simplify life and also to diversify my holdings. It seems to me like um, owning rental properties, you mentioned they're a PETA, <laughs> a classic PETA, these tenants. Oh, yeah. So I'm curious, like, is it even worth it given you can get exposure to real estate through these funds? I mean, is the return that much higher that it's worth actually managing your own properties? Well, so you're the king or queen of your castle if you own your own property. So you can renovate it. You can expand it. You can find optimal tenants. So these are the things that if you're a gung-ho and you have energy and time, you can do and make a lot more money, I think, if you own your own properties and you find you know, good values. The easiest way to make money in real estate is to buy real estate where you can expand the livable space. So for example, if you can expand every square foot by 
$300 a square foot, like your construction cost. And the market value of the house is trading at $1,000 a square foot. $1,000 minus $300 is $700. That's like two plus X return on your investment. And so that's what I've been doing since my 20s and 30s. But now that I'm 44, it's like, mm, I don't want to do that anymore. And I've also compared like actual online real estate in terms of websites, website real estate versus physical real estate. And I think to me and to you probably, the website business is actually even much more lucrative because it's much more scalable and it has less maintenance requirements. If you need help getting control of your email inbox, this is for you. That's right. This episode is brought to you by the team at MailmanHQ.com. It's a Gmail plugin that lets you decide when and what emails land in your inbox. Many of our listeners spend a huge portion of their days inside of their inbox. And if you're one of them, pay close attention to the next 30 seconds. See, Mailman allows you to set up your own emailing schedule on both your personal and work Gmail accounts such that all incoming emails are collected and delivered to your inbox as per the schedule you set up that's in batches so nothing drops in between. Now, what about those urgent emails? Don't worry, Mailman lets you configure your VIPs so their emails will land in your inbox immediately so you can respond and make progress in your business. And there's so much more too. So get a defender and an ally in your inbox. Get Mailman. Sign up for a free account over at mailmanhq.com slash tropical MBA. If you use that link and decide to upgrade to a paid plan, you'll get 30% off your first year via this link. So here it is again, mailmanhq.com slash tropical MBA. Thanks to the team at Mailman HQ for sponsoring the show. Go give them a try. Give them a look. Get ahead on your inbox. Again, that's mailmanhq.com slash tropical MBA. One thing I want to ask you about is you recently wrote a piece for uh, CNBC the title of which is quite intriguing. 42-year-old millionaire. I tried to retire early at 34, but failed. Here's what went wrong. I wonder if you mm. can take us through the narrative of that piece and what your calculus was at 34 to retire, and then yeah. why you reevaluated at 42. So at 34, I was burned out of my job. 13 years in finance, uh, Asian equities, sales and trading, clients. say that, that sounds like, what does that mean? Bring me into that world. What are you doing? I mean, so I'm helping Asian companies go public. So they're private companies. They tap the U.S. public markets. So I find investors, institutional investors to invest in them. That's one business. And the other business is, was a traditional commission business of institutional investors buying and selling equities, big positions through my firm's trading desk. Try to connect the capital to where it's needed, bring companies public. Is it help. stressful? Oh, it's super stressful. You're always graded at least quarterly on how well you do with your clients. It's a service business, which actually, if you think about it, most jobs are service businesses. And it was very stressful, but it was fun, but I knew I couldn't last. Originally, I decided work till 40, save a lot of my money and then be done. But at 34, I, I realized I could negotiate a severance that paid for five or six years of living expenses. And so I just basically tapped that onto my age, 34 to five, six years. That's 39, 40. And I said, what time is more valuable. Let's get on with it. Let's do it. The Severn sounds like a very unique situation. I know you have a book on that topic. What was that all about? I had golden handcuffs where I had um, deferred 
stock and cash and investment compensation. If I quit, I would get none of that. But if I got laid off, I would get all of that on the normal vesting schedule. And so I said, well, if I can negotiate a severance where I get laid off, that would be ideal. And what I could do is I could train my replacement. And that's what we agreed upon at the end. I trained my replacement and I made sure to the best of my ability that there wouldn't be a big drop off in coverage and business if I left. Because that's what employers really worry about if you leave. So I needed to ensure that when I left, there wouldn't be just this massive drop in revenue. And that was part of the severance negotiation agreement where I stayed on for a couple more months, trained, introduced clients, and made sure things were as good as possible to receive my deferred compensation and a specific severance check. You sell yourself to try to get in and get that job, and you can equally sell yourself to try to get out with a severance. So back when you were 34, were you thinking like 4% rule, which is a classic fire principle? Was that what justified in your mind that it's time to go? I didn't think about the 4% rule. I thought about what actually my passive income was generating. What were my investments generating? And they were generating about $80,000 a year from my rental income, dividend stocks, CD income, so forth. And so I basically, for at least three months before I left, just test drove living off $80,000 a year gross, which is totally fine because I had a wife who was making money and we're splitting the cost for our house. But the real key was the severance. The severance was a, a multiple six-figure package that paid for five years of living expenses. So I had no excuse. It was like normal living expenses, not like live in a shack or a van living expenses, but it was just no excuse. So I had a passive income. I had severance package. And then I had financial samurai, which I thought I could monetize. So I said, now or never. Let's go back. You have this wonderful article about how to become a millionaire by the time you're 30. Now you say you might need to get 3 million. That might be the equivalent to being yeah. a millionaire. I think that's fair. Yeah. You mentioned that you didn't take enough risks when you were younger. What sort of risks are you talking about? Like more investment risk. For example, I invested in this Chinese internet stock called VCSY in 2000. I only invested $3,000, but it went to $150,000. If I just invested $30,000, it would have gone to $1.5 million, and I'd, be, I'd have $1.5 million at age 23. And if I lost the $30,000, I mean, it sucked, but I was only 23 years old. Like, let's go. I can make that back. So investment risk is one. Career risk is two in the sense that I stayed at my previous firm for 11 years, but I had multiple suitors at competitors during my time for more money. And one time I got like a guaranteed pay package for 50% more for two years to go back to New York and join another bank. And I didn't take it because I didn't want to go back to New York and I was kind of burning out and there's all this pressure. And so I kind of regret not trying to get that one last hurrah before leaving. But if I did leave, then I probably wouldn't have been able to negotiate a nice severance package, right? So it's kind of pros and cons. But when you're in your 40s or older, I think you tend to look back and think, man, things were really not as risky as you thought they were. You could have just taken more risk because you got time and you got energy and you got friends and the ability to figure things out. You mentioned also that there was a job opportunity in Shenzhen that you didn't take that you look back mm. on and wish maybe you would have made a different judgment. Oh, I had a family friend who had an eyeglass factory 
Agabus Parts Factory in Shenzhen. I think he started it in 1995. And he wanted to have me become like the manager of the factory. And I thought that was awesome. Uh, I could learn Chinese. I can go to China in 1999 when I graduated from college, right at the cusp of the big explosive growth. My life would have been totally different because I also studied abroad in China in 1997. And I didn't take it because I got a really good job opportunity at Goldman Sachs in New York. And that was like, man, I, it's hard to turn that down. And I had 55 interviews and over seven rounds and over six months. And so I'm glad I took the job in New York City, but I wonder what my life would have been if I went the other route. It would have been, I think, very exciting. So back to your original question on why I failed at early retirement. I enjoyed early retirement for about a year with a lot of doubt too. Like, am I doing the right thing? I got to point out, you're a great tennis player and a great golfer. There are not all single digit handicaps around and not a lot of 5.0 tennis players. I'm like the worst 5.0 tennis player you can meet. <laughs> but I failed because, well, I mean, I putzed around for the first 12 months, a lot of doubt, wondering whether I did the right thing. I traveled like everywhere, 20 countries with my wife. And then after a while, you just get bored. I felt stupid telling anybody I was retired at 34. By that time, I turned 35. And I wanted to be productive and I wanted to do something. And so luckily I had an outlet with Financial Samurai. So that's what I did. I wrote three times a week, started my newsletter, wrote my severance negotiation book. And I said, well, this actually feels good to actually be somebody. So I said, okay, I'm, I'm just a writer when someone ever asks. Tell me a little bit about your writing process. I'm so jealous of these beautiful long articles. Um, it's something I <laughs> yeah. used to do a lot of and something I aspire to do more of in the future. I try to write from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. or just write, read before the kids get up. Now I take my son to school from 8.30 and I come back around 9.15. And then hopefully my article is done, but if not, I'll just work on it. So I try to work three to four hours a day and okay. I try to optimize it so that I get the meat of my writing done and then I edit it and then I just unleash it to the world and I spend the next day just sharing it. and that's it. It's really interesting, like in the personal finance space, you're either kind of a writer and you tell stories about real life and real events, or you hire a bunch of freelance writers to pump out SEO-related content. And so I understand the allure of making money online and all that stuff, but it just it was really boring. Like, I didn't want to write that kind of content, and I didn't want to hire people to write that kind of content because I was just having too much fun writing on my own. I just like to write. It's like a muscle. You go play tennis for two hours or you go write for an hour, two hours. It's the same thing. It's like a mental to physical connection. So I've always tried to kind of balance that. And so I found that the cadence of three times a week is perfect. And a newsletter once every Sunday is not bad. It's kind of a pain in the ass sometimes because Sundays you want to just relax. But Sunday morning I wake up at 6 a.m. And, and I write the newsletter. Tell me about like the germ of an article, like the germ of an idea and the, how it gets turned into an article. Yeah, like when you get to that desk in the morning, do you have like a list of titles that you emailed yourself? No, I mean, it's, I like to talk about current events and I also like to talk about evergreen topics that we all think about. So I'm just finishing writing my book. It's called Buy This, Not That. It's with Portfolio Random House. And it basically pits together a lot of life's biggest decisions, such as private school or public school, marry rich, or marry for love, have children young or late, 
you know, do a startup or go the traditional route. A lot of these are big topics that we all kind of think about. And I try to allow readers to come to a decision in an optimal manner. You're never going to get 100% right, but I think with a 70-30 philosophy or a 70% chance you're going to get it right, 30% of the time you're going to get it wrong and you're going to learn from it. That's some of the best things we can hope for in terms of ratios. Like today, I wrote about um, finding the two-hour workday job that pays you full-time. And that comes out from this guy, the CEO from Better.com, fired 900 of his employees on Zoom uh, three weeks before Christmas. And that sucks. I've seen that happen many times before in banking. But he then went on this uh, anonymous message board called Blind or something, and then he admitted it was him. And he said 250 employees were only working for two hours a day while supposedly supposed to work eight hours a day. And so I thought that was pretty amazing because I've talked to many tech friends who say their lives are so much better since the pandemic because they work from home, they can do whatever they want, they have flexibility. One friend goes to Giants games like every week and he works at Facebook. I mean, the Giants game is like 1.30 to 4 p.m. It's like, really? Okay. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, man, what am, I'm like the idiot who doesn't have the job and who has two kids to support. Maybe I should go get a job and try to find those jobs where I can work two hours a day and make uh, multiple six figures, why not, right? I mean, that's like yeah. a rational thing to do. And so I kind of look at topics that people would care about, like who wouldn't want to just work two hours a day and get paid full time? So that's an obvious topic. And then I'm trying to discover, like, how do people do it? And what, uh, how do companies surveil you? Real life, that's the thing. If you write about real life, it's easy to get people to talk and share and comment on the stuff. It is remarkable how robust your comment section is. It's like there's a chorus of people that want to engage in your content. It's interesting because you have this big forum with all these people writing and everybody has a unique voice and there's hundreds of commenters and thousands of people that read. What's unique about your voice that you're able to pull it all together? I mean, I think just writing about stuff people care about. I can write the five best... uh, Travel credit cards. <laughs> like, who, I, mean, I mean, who gives a crap? Like, come on. You just need one or two credit cards. Or, or you can write about how to get paid full time while working only two hours a day. I mean, that's like so much more interesting. One reader I have actually has two jobs, two full-time jobs. Basically, that's what freelancers do. Like, I remember freelancing once. I was like, wait a minute. I could do three, three freelance clients at once and make triple the amount. I mean, you can, it's unsustainable because you eventually burn out. But come on, let's be all be honest. Nobody works, if it's a 40 hour a week job, nobody works full 40 hours a week. So the productivity and efficiency has gone up. And so if you want to capture that efficiency gain and make more money, you can do it if you want. I just want to give a big thanks to all of you who listened to ads like this and went on over to dynamitejobs.com to see what we've got going on over there. Because of that, we've helped place hundreds of qualified remote professionals in your companies last year. And for this holiday season, many of you are gearing up your operation for continued growth in 2022. And to help you do it, we've got three exciting options for you to explore. The first is our entirely new hiring platform with a job post dashboard that allows you to repost and promote anytime. We've got a growing list of features there, including intelligent promotion options to help you get the maximum amount of applications. We've also got our done for you service. If you're sick of sorting, assessing, 
and interviewing, you can hire our senior recruiting staff to do the heavy lifting on your behalf. They are experienced at identifying trajectory, alignment, salary fit, and much more. And the best part is it's a flat fee. If you're hiring multiple times in 2022, we're offering bundles with steep discounts. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and book a call to hear about that. And finally, we offer contract recruiting. That's right, a zero-risk hiring option if you don't really know about the long-term fit or if you're looking for a partner to help take care of the legalities of hiring contractors. We can do that for a monthly fee for the contractors that you bring on board. So let's grow together. If you're looking to grow your remote business, book a call with our team and find out today how Dynamite Jobs can help. You can find out about this and much more over at dynamitejobs.com slash remote recruiting. One of the things um, I've just noticed a lot is how we graft so many emotions onto money. So I'm going to talk about some of yours and maybe we could observe some mistakes or solutions out there. But one of the things in your writing you said is uh, your parents were really frugal. And so you felt shame at the condition of their cars, for example, when they were dropping you off at school. And that's something I can relate to. And I'm curious as to what kind of effect that had on you. It was more embarrassment. I mean, my dad had had like a 12-year-old 1976 Datsun Nissan. It was like not Nissan. It was like called Datsun. There was no no paint on it. There was only one hubcap on it. And I was like always ducking when I would go somewhere. (laughs) Their frugal ways completely affected how I viewed money, viewed work, and spent money. So I completely appreciate the value of money because of their frugal ways. And because I also saw that my parents weren't always happy at work. And so if you're frugal and you're not always happy at work, you're not going to waste your money. And so they just taught me really early on to save and to invest. And one of my key messages to financial samurai readers is uh, to try to forecast your misery because eventually you're going to get miserable at doing the same thing over and over again. So you want to forecast when that will be so you can save and invest and find alternatives to get out I think a lot of people will wake up 10 years from now with not enough savings, not enough investments and say, I'm miserable. And then they just get really miserable because they're stuck. It's kind of interesting how you adventure advice for people not to screw around in high school and college. I screwed around and regret it, but yet I didn't have anybody to tell me that wasn't my parents stop screwing around. Well, I mean, the world is super brutally competitive now. It's, It's like ridiculous how competitive it is. And there are so many candidates for just one spot. I don't know. Maybe it's cool to say, oh, yeah, have the time of your life, YOLO, screw off, do whatever when you're a teenager in your 20s. I mean, life is both long and short. So you screw off when you're young. You kind of screw yourself as a young adult. And then you might have to delay what the life that you really want until much later. But if you kind of focus and someone sets you straight earlier on, you can kind of chart your path. And then because life is also long, at the back end, you can really enjoy time. Like if you got the money and the education and the understanding after, let's say, if you're in your 30s or 40s, I mean, life is good. You can live 40 years, 50 years and do it just because you focused for the first 20 years of your life. What are some of the mistakes that you see people carry on into their 20s then? I know you have a lot of exposure to your readers who mm. are in their 20s. What are they doing wrong? I don't know if it's wrong or right, but I think... The easiest thing to do is to find someone who's been there before. So if you want to go where that person is going, build a relationship 
see if you can help them and then seek their advice and mentorship because life is a cycle like and it goes through the same kind of emotions and stages we all make and your goal is to seek out the people who have been there before so they can teach you what landmines to avoid sometimes on social media twitter there's a lot of angry people emotional people people who project their frustrations and their anger onto you especially if you have a following or a website but invariably when you look at their past or what they're doing there's something that is off there's something that they didn't do correctly or optimally or there's something that there's missing and so it's really worth focusing when you're younger what about startup or job so my advice there is if you can get that money job that pays the market rate i think you take that route you won't learn as quickly but you develop your experience cuz let's say you're 23 years old and you join a startup and you have like 0.1% equity you're not one of the top 10 or 20 employees and a startup could go from 10 million to 1 billion it don't matter you're not going to get rich that way cuz you didn't get enough equity because you got not enough experience But after about I would say 5 to 10 years experience if you still want to do the startup because if you think about it as an angel investor or a VC the majority of your investments will fail. So if the majority of your investments fail then the majority of startups that you join will fail and maybe like 20% will just hover and not make you a lot but not lose you a lot. And then maybe 10% or less will be big hits. If you join a startup you got to think like an investor. Would you invest in this company and what are the probabilities that this company will succeed? And even if it does succeed, how rich will you get? And if you don't get rich, you better be learning, right? And that's a good thing about startups, you generally tend to learn a lot more, a lot quicker because you have more responsibility. But I think the 70/30 move is to if you can get a great job at one of those great industries that pay you well to work until you're about 30, 32. and then join a startup after you've got 5 to 10 years experience you can make better decisions and you can probably make a lot more money one of the big mistakes i see is you know like just not driving net profit in your career like thinking about your own personal balance sheet in other words like if you work for 10 years but you don't have any net income at the end of it then you kind of wasted 10 years don't you think well so you're not earning your learning so you always got to be earning or learning or both And so startup jobs they pay below market rate for the equity that could turn yeah. into something. It's consistently like that. So, since you don't know much after college anyway, whether you join a startup or a established firm, you're always going to be learning. You're going to be learning anyway. So, it depends on what what that day job is. Like if it's like a day job nobody's ever heard of or doesn't pay that much, then go for it. Your hurdles low. But if you find like if you get a job at McKinsey, Bain, JP Morgan big law firm whatever you should probably take that and then you can always learn on the side and while on the job and then you can parlay that think about parlaying it into something better I love that that, that term parlay because that's actually how success often happens it's a little counterintuitive so sort of roll up all your experience and resources and it only takes one you know big win which is kind of what yeah. I wanted to end the interview is a lot of uh, our listeners have big exits And so it's especially now that the market's really frothy people are getting paid yeah their businesses. So I'm curious if we could take a case study of someone who sold their business for a million dollars. Yeah. Uh, 
I'm looking at your top ranking of the best passive income investments. How might you think about investing such a windfall in cash? Well, first of all, I would say never sell your cash cows. So never sell your business if it's a cash cow. So if you sell it for a million dollars and you're generating, let's say, a 30% operating profit margin, 300 grand, you're a fool to sell it for a million dollars. One, in three years, you'll get three, 3.3 years, you'll get back your million dollars. And then everything after that is infinity returns. Two, in a low interest rate environment, it takes a lot more capital to generate passive income. So let's say with the 300,000 example, 300,000 divided by 0.02%, you need $15 million to generate $300,000. How do interest rates affect passive returns? Oh, everything's correlated to the risk-free rate of return, which is the 10-year bond yield. So to invest in stocks, you need a return greater than the risk-free rate. Otherwise, you wouldn't invest. Same thing with real estate or anything. It's always about the opportunity cost of getting a guaranteed return, which is the 10-year bond yield, which is right now around 1.5%. So I just said 30% operating profit business, million-dollar exit. You might think, oh, million-dollar exit, sweet. It's terrible. It's terrible because to generate $300,000 at a 2% interest rate, is 15, you need 15 million in capital or 15x 1 million, right? And to generate 300,000 at a 4% rate of return, it's seven and a half million, which is seven and a half times more than a million. So I think like in this like entrepreneurial business space, too many people, I think, think about buying a business, optimizing and selling it. I think it's just such an inefficient use of effort. And then in a low interest rate environment, selling for not a huge multiple, because like, the S&P 500 is trading at above a 25x multiple, 25 times earnings. But if you're going to sell your business for three times earnings, you are getting shellacked. Like you're just getting taken advantage of. And so that is why people are buying your business. Okay. And you're only selling it unless you think like in the next month, it's going to go to zero or something. Right. So message one, don't sell your cash cows. Message you two. You have a wonderful article on Financial Samurai about exactly this. It was a friend, Right. It's just a guy who sold his business for million, three million, I think three million dollars, and he regretted it. Then this was like twelve years ago, because mm-hmm. the business would have probably generated twenty million dollars by now if he just kept it. But it's always good to reinvest some of your proceeds, right? Diversify and just generate truly passive. Because business, you still got to run. So financial samurai, I spend about probably twenty hours a week on it, and I like about eighteen hours of those twenty hours. <laughs> it's pretty good. But it's not obviously passive at all. It's the business, right? And so you want to think about the business, reinvest in your business, but also reinvest in those investments that are very passive. Dividend stocks are 100% passive. Rental property, semi-passive, right? You can be lucky or unlucky. And it's up to you. And so I know that my tolerance for dealing with people is fading the wealthier and older I get. Right? What do you like, mean by that? Like when I was young, when I was 23, didn't know anybody, if someone was annoying or arrogant, I would just put up with it. Oh, okay, good, right? But if you're annoying and arrogant now with me, I, then I, I just, I can't deal with you, right? Like forget it, the time's too valuable. You end up spending time with people you like the most and not dealing with anything that you don't want to do with. What is the passive investment opportunity that you feel isn't emphasized enough in the financial independence space? One, People who want to retire early or quit their jobs, they need to negotiate a severance. 
like quitting your job is akin to like a baby panda dying in the woods. It's so sad. Two, real estate is highly emphasized because the yields are, are greater than dividend yields for stocks. And also real estate tends to go up. But I think the one investment I think people don't think about the most is um, entrepreneurship. You can financial independence, go to entrepreneurship, retire to an entrepreneur lifestyle. You want to be doing something. I don't think anybody retires early. I think they just end up doing something else. Like after, again, six to 12 months of me at 34 retiring, I was bored as hell. I said, let's, let's do something and be somebody and do something more meaningful. Because at the end of the day, you want to like contribute to society. You want to feel good and say, I'm a writer or I'm a podcaster. Something. You want to be something. Yeah, you mentioned and, like when your friend sold his business, he felt like a lost puppy dog. Like there is an identity piece to our career. Yeah, you, you want to have purpose. And so as a father now, I have like crazy amount of purpose. There's a great quote that says, have children and the money will come because you don't want to screw up your children. You want to provide for them. And so I've been focused on whether it's building a passive income streams or setting up a revocable trust or a will all that stuff. It's like, I'm so focused now because people depend on me. So it's like DNA. It's like inherent evolution of our species to, so it can continue. The one investment I think is leveraging technology and the internet online. I mean, we talk about this forever. We've been online forever, but it's just a no brainer to brand yourself online. It's, it's so awesome. There's like no gatekeepers anymore. Uh, actually, no, sorry. There are gatekeepers who tend to rub the backs of people who are very similar to themselves, but you can blaze your own trail. And that's what I'm excited to do in 2022 once uh, the book comes out is to just talk about that and say, look, there's the gatekeepers are not there. Build your brand, make your money. You can do whatever you want nowadays. Big shout out to Sam Dogan for coming by the show. If you haven't already, I highly recommend you checking out his blog, financialsamurai.com. That's it. We'll be back to talk about our perspective on a lot of these issues in a coming episode. If you'd like to participate in our Q&A episodes, you can drop an email to our producer, Jane, at tropicalmba.com or record a voicemail on your telephone and email it over to her. We'd love to play it on the show. We're looking forward to an amazing year of TMBA episodes. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back as always next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.